Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Not only is this your weekly discussion of all that is most interesting in the capital markets, but I am pleased to reveal this week that we are Estonia's 27th most popular business news podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the stats you can pull up on a podcast. From. One day, one day, Ralph will be big in Japan. <laughs> oh, I can only, I can only dream. I can only dream. We are big in Ireland, though. We're uh, we are the tenth most popular business news podcast in Ireland. I, I found out. So thank you to our uh, dedicated <laughs> audience in the Emerald Isle. Um, now uh, today, we are, of course very sadly marking the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, there's there's no end in sight to that conflict, it seems, and that's affected the world in all sorts of ways and continues to. Um, to mark the event, our emerging markets team of Francesca Young and George Collard uh, are writing three stories examining the effects of the invasion on the capital markets. The first of those, which discusses how the war has affected Central and Eastern Europe's capital markets, is out today and the others will follow on Monday and Tuesday. And we'll be talking to George Collard a bit later about that. Meanwhile, there's big changes underway at the World Bank, aren't there, John? Yes, well, the World Bank was already in a, a state of some tension and change when last week, uh, out of the blue, David Malpass, the president, announced he was stepping down. He's going to go in June. That'll be nearly a year early before his term is due to expire. And um, so that, that set everybody talking in Washington. Um, and... Uh, the US, which typically chooses the president effectively, although it doesn't it doesn't have a sort of official right to do so, has um, nominated somebody yesterday. And who is that, John? Because I understand they weren't a front runner in many people's minds for the job. Yeah, it's Ajay Banga. He was CEO of MasterCard for 10 years uh, from 2010 to 2020. Before that, he worked for Citigroup um, and he was there for about 15 years and ended as uh, CEO of Asia Pacific for Citigroup. So he's probably the most business friendly or businessy type um, head of the World Bank that there's been, uh, you know, certainly in recent memory. Okay, now, um, what does this matter to bond markets? Obviously, the World Bank is a very important borrower in the in the bond markets, even if it's not, you know, the the biggest or anything like that. Um, and this is the president. He's not he's not really changing the funding or the guarantee of World Bank debt or the price of the debt. So so why do we care? Yeah, well, I mean, the world. Well, I care for a lot of reasons, but but I mean, the, the bond market will will be interested in this as well, because um, the you're quite right that it's a very stable organization from a financial point of view and a credit rating point of view and so on. And they will just keep issuing their um, tens of billions um, I think it's around 40, 50 billion a year of of bonds um, in with AAA ratings. So that's not going to change. But what could happen is that a, a they could do more borrowing. They could also use more innovative instruments as well as their ordinary bonds to achieve certain ends. And it's really about this kind of reform and financial innovation at the World Bank 
which are which are hot topics at the moment and going on behind the scenes the world bank is trying to work out what to do about these issues so it's really there that the new, the new president Bangor, if he is chosen will will make an impact yeah this is quite a controversial topic isn't it among the multilateral development banks because on the one hand there was this uh, report from the G20 i think in the summer that um urged the multilaterals to do more borrowing and to without getting to stuck in the stuck in the detail of it basically to to encourage them to do more borrowing by saying well you won't risk your AAA status which is what allows them to borrow money so cheaply in the capital markets um but of course you know these are these are quite conservative institutions and they worry that they will lose that that rating don't they and there's i i think you know um i won't sort of name any names and we've spoken very broadly to people uh, throughout these in number of institutions um and they they're kind of reluctant to just sort of as it were strap on a load of extra debt just because of the g20 recommendations so this is quite a pivotal moment isn't it and it's quite a therefore quite a pivotal um decision as to who gets the world bank job because it tends to be the case that where the world bank leads other supranational institutions follow that's 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 right it is very much the the sort of linchpin of the sector um that the others look to now, now that doesn't mean they the others can't uh, make progress and do things uh without the world bank but the thing is they have a lot of the same shareholders you know essentially all countries in the world are, are shareholders in the world bank and and obviously the rich countries are tend to be the bigger shareholders and that's the case in the regional development banks too so you've got in asia the the asian countries are all shareholders in, and so are the sort of rich western countries in africa you've got uh, you know donor countries from europe and the us are, are shareholders along with the african countries so it's the same constituency of shareholders that are basically going to make decisions about all of them and 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 so it's what's really going to matter is how the shareholders understand the problems at the world bank and and uh, and the other mdbs and what they decide to do about them and and this is quite a difficult problem because um th these institutions are very complicated and even the <clears throat> specialists who work at them and who know them inside out um are quite cautious about changing anything but for real change to happen it has to be the shareholders which is the national governments uh making the decisions and there's a huge job just to get them to understand the problems um then to be able to discuss it among each other um in an intelligent way and then to reach a decision okay so is uh banger's nomination i mean does this mean it's a done deal that he's going to get the job or what's the rest of the process look like well the us has nominated their candidate now um so far it, the us candidate has always been chosen it is obviously a vote of the of of the shareholders the us has 16% of the votes normally enough other countries just decide to go with support the us candidate that that they've always had their put their person in um now there there was a contested there have been you know other candidates put put forward before for example in 2011 um ngozi okonjo iweala who's been the nigerian finance minister she was also worked at the world bank for 25 years i think um certainly for a long time and and and, and in fact became the number two at the world bank she was a candidate supported by uh 
some African and developing countries. And, the, you know, this time after Malpass uh, said he was going, she, she immediately sort of rose to the front of the pack as, as a potential candidate. Um, there were others, too, from 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 the US. Um, so it, it's I think I think there will be people in developing countries who are a bit disappointed um, that uh, with the choice of Banga, he's not somebody they will have they will have been thinking about. Any of the development experts I spoke to before, nobody mentioned him. So he he's quite left field. Um, so it, I think I think there could be support for uh, uh, there to be at least a broader pool of candidates considered, and that that in in a way can be helpful, even if um, it's the it's the U.S. choice that ends up getting picked. Okay. Great, thanks. Well, I guess we'll um, we'll watch this this closely. Uh, obviously, the you know the decision who gets picked will be will be widely covered. But I think certainly for us, the uh, the consequences of what it means for uh, the World Bank and the capital markets and the other supranationals is something uh, any of our listeners will be able to follow very closely on this podcast and and on globalcapital.com. And Ralph, we had a we had a very interesting story this week, didn't we, from our US uh, securitization reporter Kunyi Yang, um, talk about the uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities market in the US. Yeah, now at first glance, that might sound like it's uh, really esoteric kind of stuff, but this is really a story about the uh, further consequences of the pandemic and how that's changing the economy and society and how we work and how we live our lives and and of course how that then manifests itself in the capital markets um what what can you identified was the fact that there's a couple of uh property companies that are defaulting on mortgages on commercial properties like mainly offices um now those mortgages are also repackaged into uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities so securitizations of these things. Um, and of course, that that is therefore bad for the sector. Um, now, of course, that's bad for that asset class and bad for investors in that asset class. Um, but really, it's it's interesting because it shows that even, even this far on from the end of lockdown and social restrictions, the way we live and the way we work has not gone back to normal. Possibly it will never go back to normal. And that will have big ramifications for this market. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this has surely got to be one of the big uh, sort of economic risks out there is is the whole office property sector, isn't it? I mean, you've it's it's a big part of of any commercial real estate uh, portfolio um, that, you know, the big the big asset classes are office, uh, retail property and industrial property. And um you know, we're simply not using offices as much anymore. I think I think you US uh, office occupancy is down about a half, isn't it? That's exactly and right. Yeah. The, the the financial consequences of this haven't haven't really fed through yet, have they? No, no. And not only are they obviously not able to let out this space to paying tenants uh, in anything like they could before. Uh, but they're they're doing this at an era when their own mortgage costs have gone up because of rising interest rates everywhere. So it's a double whammy. They're not getting the income in, but of course they're having to pay more for their debt, and that's what's mm, sort of mm. forcing these uh, owners of these uh, these sort of commercial properties to basically consider whether they have to default or not. Um, and I think uh, Kunya has said that the uh, delinquency rate uh, among offices or you know, office office mortgages. Um, it's risen twenty five basis points 
to 1.83% in January. That's according to TREP. And that's its highest level in over a year. Uh, you know, perhaps this is the start of something, something worse. I think it could get a lot worse, actually. And um, it's, you know, she, she noticed, didn't she, that, that, that there've already been quite marked changes in investor behavior in the CMBS market mm. in, in, as, they, as people get ready for the, for the trouble, basically. Yeah, I think, you know, the underlying sort of assets, the mortgages, so the companies owns own these uh, these um, properties are sort of really considering their options. Uh, they can default. They can obviously try and sell the properties that they own. But of course, if they're all trying to sell in a falling market, that's that's not a brilliant option. And of course, then investors that invest in US CMBS are sort of looking at the what's in these what's in what are the mortgages that um fill these securities and sort of really starting to distinguish um what it is that's in there uh they 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 fall into sort of three three categories um class a class b and class c uh class a being the highest quality uh of of offices you might say so these will be uh ones with all the best tech the best car parks the best public transport the shiniest coffee machines and all the rest of it um mm -hmm. class c probably more likely a sort of porter cabin around the back of an abattoir on the edge of town but um you know <laughs> uh, and those are the ones obviously that people don't really want to go and work in and uh if people aren't compelled to go and work in an office anymore they, they generally don't so that's really starting to make investors distinguish as to to which which cmbs deals they want to want to get involved in and which they don't and obviously that has uh, financing ramifications for for offices themselves. And of course, uh, a wave of uh, defaults on property and, you know, falling property market, which is usually the consequence, um, it, it tends to be, uh, well, is often a, a, a precursor of wider financial disaster, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, of course, uh, keen financial historians and anyone who was who was around with a memory of 2008 uh, will, of course, remember that um, subprime mortgages, you know, precipitated the financial crisis there. I mean, look, it's 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 not the same. I know they're mortgages, but they're not. It's not the same crisis. This isn't about um, mortgages being missold uh, and then the leverage of that throughout the financial system creating havoc this is really about some quite specific assets uh turning bad really so you would hope that we're sort of you know not looking down the barrel of that gun but you know in terms of what it says about um the economy generally it's not all that promising is it i mean i know you know uh, U.S. job numbers are, are stronger than expected, for example. However, yield curves are uh, still inverted, which is often a, a precipitate. Oh, sorry, a predictor of recession. Um, and so, this is sort of, you know, I guess, I guess, one more sign that um, the economic recovery from COVID nineteen is, uh, is is a rocky and uncertain path. And I think the the way out has to be converting some of these buildings to residential, doesn't it? I mean, you know, that's that's been starting uh, already a long time ago. I remember talking to somebody in 2020 about this, um, a Swedish property company, I think, and they were they were starting to do a bit of that. And, you know, it, it's um, I mean, there is a, there is need for housing uh, in most, you know, cities and, you know, countries. So 
the, the quicker some of this spare capacity can be turned over to that, the better, I think. And and offices, of course, will then have to get used to probably having much more granular tenant base, um, you, using it in a more flexible way, and and things like that. So you know, the office market is not going to not going to be the same as it was. No, that's right. And it does seem a very sort of elegant solution to a number of problems, like first problem being it it will prevent a a certain amount of building on greenfield sites and environmental destruction that way. Uh, It also reuses the building stock that you already have. Uh, It will also Mm. bring people back into city centres. Yeah. You know, yeah. which either either become undesirable or unaffordable, depending on on, on yeah. where you sit. I guess you know there are other problems with that, though, aren't there? There, there are regulatory problems, for example. You know, um, often you will find that there are rules about what sort of building, uh, you know, what what the requirements of a building are that can be used for residential use, such as you know number of windows, distance from a window, um, heights of the floors population density and all the rest of it that apply to residential buildings things that are, that are very different for buildings that were designed for offices so there will be a fair amount of you know i guess i guess regulatory change that has to take place or yeah. um, certainly a lot of you know repurposing of the way we do things now i think yeah that's a good point i mean the rules of course can be changed when when circumstances change but the but i mean i i, I do th- i do find it absurd sometimes that you know you look at any office block and it's just glass floor to ceiling. Yeah, that that's the sort of standard now for for office construction. But then you look at new housing developments in in the UK anyway. They're often built with tiny windows, and you just think how you know how awful and sort of what a, what a what a waste and what a shame, you mm. know, to to make this flat unattractive and sort of dark because because of some building regulations. And you know, it, it's you know energy efficiency. I think is one reason for the for the latter rules. But but they haven't applied it to to offices in the same way, and I think, um, you know, if people are going to start living in office blocks, uh, you know, things like that will have to change. Yeah, but uh, you know, it would be a welcome thing because I think the you know the one thing we still see, yeah, despite absolutely. despite mm. the um, fall in office usage, is these skyscrapers that have gone up everywhere with the lights on all night yeah. and no one in them day or night, yeah. and surely that's got to change. Well, the City of London, I think, has got a new scheme for for zoning um, properties and the one uh, into how how late they can keep the lights on. And you know, if you're in Zone A, for example, you the lights have got to go off at midnight unless you've got a very good reason to keep them on. So they're trying to do this for, uh, I think, to save energy and also uh, light pollution. Well, that'd be bad news for you, John, because you're uh, you're notorious for burning the midnight oil. <laughs> well, nowadays I'm holed up in Shepherd's Bush, so um, the regulators can't touch me there. OK, well, we spoke to George Collard about the consequences a year on of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the capital markets. Hello, George. Welcome back to the Global Capital Podcast. Morning. It's good to be here. And uh, so tell us, what are you and Francesca working on at the moment to mark the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine? We're doing a three-part piece, I think, which is split into three, as I said. So the the war's impact on Central and Eastern Europe, which 
you know, while all emerging markets were, were hit very badly by the war, that's naturally being next door to it, the, the area that's probably borne the brunt the most. Um, and then we'll be looking at Russian and Ukrainian issuers. Russian, Russia and, and its issuers were a big part of, of emerging market debt before the war. Um, looking at, you know, what investors have done about the, the hole that has appeared now that that's disappeared. And secondly, Ukraine and, and its issue is a much smaller debt pile, but still it's not insignificant. And, and what their situation is, what their access to funding is like. And I guess what their... Uh what their access to funding is likely to to be as the as the situation evolves yeah of course okay so let's talk a little bit then about um how the war has affected um the capital markets in central and eastern europe um it's interesting isn't it because there have been an awful lot of sovereign bond issues from the region this year um now how has market access for those countries changed since the war began? It hasn't really, to be honest. Um, I mean, immediately after the invasion a year ago, access for everyone was, was shut. There was, I think it was about a month after February the 24th, 2022. We didn't have a single Central Eastern European deal, Middle Eastern deal, African deal. Um, but it slowly returned and effectively access hasn't really changed. Um, we've had bonds this year from, you know, the higher rated Central and Eastern European countries like Slovenia, or Poland, and the lower rated ones that are below investment grade, such as North Macedonia and, and Serbia. So in terms of access, nothing has changed really, at least this year. Last year, of course, there, there was a period where it was difficult for anyone to do anything, but they returned pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, now there's access and then there's access. Um, it's one thing being able to come to the market, but it's another thing being able to come to the market at a at a you know a tight tight price. Um, has pricing changed for these borrowers? It has. Yes. There's there's what's called a, a CE premium. Uh, it's what investors call it. Um, one investor we spoke to, he put it that before the war, though they are emerging markets or at least considered emerging markets they enjoyed the benefit of being in Europe and, and close to Western Europe, enjoyed the benefits of that, but that's gone. And he, he illustrated that by comparing um, Poland's bonds to Chile, which is a, a similarly rated issuer outside of Europe. Um, and before the war, the, the, the day before the invasion last year, um, a Poland's bond maturing in 2036 was, was 60 basis points tighter than its equivalent in Chile. Um, and that immediately disappeared the day after the invasion. Um, and it remains the case now. So that that benefit in terms of pricing uh, has gone. And are there any of the Central and Eastern European countries that have had it worse than others from this? There have, yes. There's a few names cropped up. The two, two we heard were, were Czech Republic and Hungary, which were almost entirely, if not entirely, reliant on Russia for their energy. And obviously the the biggest impact from the war globally has been the disruption to energy supply which you know in europe caused a, a crisis that you know oil and gas prices shot up um and for someone like hungary and for someone like czech republic and, and others in central eastern europe that rely heavily not just on oil and gas but general trade links with russia and ukraine it, it was a really nasty blow um hungary stands out um investors said partly because also their reliance on russian energy meant they opposed or at least did their best to try and weaken EU sanctions on Russian energy imports. So that has sort of made it a double blow. They've they've not only had to had to bear the brunt of higher energy prices, but there's also a 
I guess, a, a political or ESG penalty they have to pay um, on top of that. You mean in the bond market? They, they're paying more because of that? Yes, yeah. Um, they've, they've done a few issues over the past mm. year. So they, yeah, their access hasn't changed. And Hungary is a, is a frequent and regular issue in the bond mm. market. Um, but yeah, investors have said that from an ESG perspective, it and this is partly to do with its relationship with Russia, partly not, um, has meant that they demand a bit more from Hungary. Um, and indeed, Hungary has been downgraded recently, um, down to just one notch above junk rating. And one investor we spoke to said it wouldn't be a surprise to him if over the next two years or so, maybe longer, maybe a little shorter, to see one rating agency at least down, downgrade it to, to below investment grade. And of course, uh, it and Poland are involved in a dispute with the European Union about the uh, primacy of the rule of law, which we've talked about before in this podcast. So we won't go back through the details of that again. But the the effect of that at the moment is that the EU is uh, not dispersing funding uh, to the country, which will, of course, put more pressure on on its sovereign finances. So I, I suppose it must be quite hard when talking about the CE premium to say how much that is. Uh, because I guess it will vary from country to country, and of course there are all sorts of other factors um, involved that may, you know, that sort of occlude what that calculation might be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, there are some countries in Central and Eastern Europe, part of the eurozone, for example, they use the euro, which which helps them when issuing bonds, um, whereas others aren't. And like Hungary is not, for example. Um, mm. And you know, other countries in Central and Eastern Europe, the Baltics, uh, have been vociferous in their criticism of Russia. And then when you put Hungary next to them, it, it as one uh, as one investor put it, it makes Hungary look like the bad guy. Um, so yeah, you can't assign the CE mm. premium just sort of blank a blanket cost to all Central Eastern European countries. Yeah. Um, now the um, energy cost crisis. Um, how has that affected, or has it had any effect on the amount that uh, Central and Eastern European borrowers need to raise? Um, how are we seeing that play out in the bond markets? It's tricky. I, a few issues we've spoken to over the past month or two this year, but also last year, um, have said that it hasn't really because they've been able to tax energy companies, for example, the profits that they've had. Um, other countries ha- have been able to sort of wean themselves off Russian. Other countries that are less reliable on Russian energy than, say, a Hungary or a Czech Republic have been able to look elsewhere so that the blow has been lessened. So I think while it will have ris- will have increased funding needs across not just Central and Eastern Europe, but, but all over the world, um, I don't think it has had a huge impact. And how are people expecting things to evolve this year? I know it's very difficult to predict what can happen in the war itself. Um, but but is the market in a basically a sort of steady state about this issue now? And um, or, 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 you know, are there sort of further upsets that people expect? Yeah, as you say, it's, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in Ukraine. Um, one of the investors we chatted to this week he noted that the, the funding, extra funding costs that these Central and Eastern European countries are, are facing to, to issue new bonds, it has eased slightly, but that is mainly due to the fall in energy prices over the past few months, um, which uh, that's a good thing for their finances. But he said it would pretty much take peace tomorrow in Ukraine to really unwind that CE premium. 
Um, and even so, even if it did, he didn't think things would ever be like they like they were before the war for, for Central East European sovereigns. Because people would always still worry about another Russian war, basically. Yes, or well, not just Russia. Actually, there's you know there's Russia's intentions to Moldova. There's been talk of Russia stirring up trouble in Serbia. There's the China and Taiwan. It's it's sort of scarred, is the way he put it. it it's it's mm. it's made investors right. think about where else something like this might happen because I think it's a fairly unique situation. Um, and but it has it has raised fears that it could happen elsewhere. A country that is a big user of the bond market um, is Turkey. And it's obviously geographically and in some ways sort of politically uh, close to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Um, what, are, what are people saying about uh, Turkey and capital markets? It's obviously it's a borrower that, um, you know, the, the borrower itself uh, shows remarkable resilience doesn't it and uh it, it seems able to get done given given the country's own economic woes and um you know now it's got sort of this going on on its doorstep how how is it sort of how does it fit into this um this debate it, it's, it's a strange one turkey because they're they're playing a a balance a sort of balancing role between russia and the west because of their geographic location you know on the one hand um they've been supplying drones to ukraine but on the other, they've been hosting or trying to host peace talks, and it's it's a sort of strange um, balancing act they're playing. Um, um, there's a nuclear power station in Turkey that is being built and partly funded by Russia, and that's boosting Turkey's foreign reserves, foreign currency reserves. Which, in the event that Turkey did have trouble accessing the bond market, which it hasn't in the past year, despite all the internal problems it has, uh, that would really help them. Um, and there's also the Syria, where Turkey and Russia have been, maybe not on the same side, but pursuing similar goals. So yeah, Turkey is a a, a strange one, you could put it, when it comes to the Ukraine war. Okay, well, looking ahead to um, what you've got coming up um, on the the stories that you're going to publish at the start of next week, um, Ukraine. Um, now we've written a lot, as have uh, a lot of other sort of uh, media media outlets about. Uh, Ukraine's initial borrowing with it uh, once the war started and the goodwill it sort of enjoyed um, from international investors. What what is the state of play with it at the moment? It obviously it and its borrowers have no access to public capital markets as we know it because they wouldn't be able to bring an international bond. But what is going on and what what do people anticipate? There's a mixed bag for the the non-sovereign issuers in Ukraine. Some of them have secured debt relief. Um, some of them haven't asked for it and have kept paying their bonds. They're in a minority, but uh, Metinvest, the the metal company which had assets in cities like Mariupol, which have have gone, um, they they are still paying their debts um, at least for now. Uh, the, the one outlier is Naftogaz, the state energy company, which has repeatedly asked investors for um, debt relief and has been unable to do so. Um, it's quite murky and political, I think, partly. Um, but that that's an outlier. And of course, the Ukraine sovereign um, towards the end of the summer last year secured a two-year debt relief. So yeah, it's it's perhaps surprising that some Ukrainian issuers are still paying their debts, given the damage that has occurred in Ukraine. Um, but yeah, m- I think they are in the minority that most of them have secured some sort of debt relief. George, what about Russia? 
obviously no Russian entity is going to be able to issue a bond to international investors at the moment because they wouldn't buy it. But all those many, many billions of Russian bonds that were issued, and after all, it was a big part of the Central and East European bond market for a long time, they still exist. They're still in the in the portfolios of investors, presumably. And although it's, you now can't trade them, um, they're still legally there. So what's happening with them? Are they? Are there any? Are any of them still paying their interest and so on? Yes, it it, it did get very murky last year when I, I think because it was such an unprecedented situation and sanctions were immediately placed on various entities that would process payments from these companies to investors, for example. Um, some Russian companies have been able to continue paying debts, Gazprom, for example, um, whereas others haven't. Um, this is not partly, this is not just because of sanctions as well. The Russian government to, in, to try and preserve their foreign currency told the companies that they should start paying foreign investors in rubles rather than in dollars or euros, which, you know, no, no, no overseas investor is going to want rubles that are stuck in a Russian bank account, which they can't use. Um, and of course, the, the Russian sovereign itself defaulted um, because sanctions made it impossible for it to pay its debts. Um, Russia has argued, rightly or wrongly, that it tried to pay and it was sanctions that meant it couldn't. Um, there was a lot of debate over whether it was the right thing to do by the US Treasury to, to enforce that default. Um, so yeah, it, it is similar to, to Ukraine, um, Ukrainian issues in that some are still paying, some just aren't able to. Um, but yes, you're right. The investors are stuck with these bonds. Liquidity froze; they were unable to sell them, so they they do still exist, um, just in a sort of frozen state, as as it were. Mm -hmm. And of course, bonds means bankers, and um, as you say, the uh, Russian capital markets were a big part of uh, wider the wider emerging market asset class. There were uh, Russian banks uh, in the city; um, they've gone. There were, of course, uh, you know, the major international banks had had operations in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, They're gone too. Um, I guess you'll be talking as well about where where those people have ended up um, and and what what they're doing now and uh, how how banks are sort of making up for that missing part of their business. Yeah, you're right. It was a big a big chunk of their business. Um, I think Russia and its issuers compared with, with with other Central Eastern European companies, you know, there were far more Russian banks and corporates issuing than in Ukraine, for example, uh, or, or somewhere like Poland. Um, so yeah, it, it was a big loss. Banks have had to pull out of Russia, find somewhere for those bankers who specialized in that part of the world to, to go. It's not just Russian issuance that has gone, um, issuance from the Commonwealth of Independent States, the sort of former Soviet countries that, that surround Russia, that has dried up as well. So um, it, it has been a, a real headache for banks as well, not just investors. Why do you think the um, other CIS countries haven't been issuing? It's partly because of energy prices, I think. Um, a lot of them have you know, large oil and gas um, businesses in, in their country, so they have benefited from that. Their financing needs um, are not huge. Secondly, they were never big issuers in the first place before, so... Uh, it's, it's not like there's a huge mm. debt pile that needs refinancing at the moment. They will have to at some point, but um, not right now. And, and thirdly, I think investors, it's the same as Central and Eastern European uh, Europe, really. There's that premium that investors will demand, which means that mm. if they don't need to issue a new bond, 
than they're not going to at the moment. Okay, so George, how does market access look then for these three constituencies? Obviously, we know that the Central and Eastern European borrowers have market access, even if uh, it is it is a different kettle of fish to, to what it was before the war and will, will remain so. Okay, George, so how, how does this then look in terms of market access for these three constituencies, Central Eastern European borrowers, Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, as, we, as we've discussed, for Central Eastern Europe, access is there. The costs are higher. Um, for Ukraine, it's, it's hard to say. There has been talk of, you know, guarantees from the US, for example, like USAID bonds, which have helped other emerging market issuers um, raise debt in the past. Um, guarantees from um, people like the World Bank, for example. There's there's a lot of different ideas that have been floated of how to get Ukraine funding from from private investors, um, because obviously at the moment, if a Ukrainian issuer came with a a bond like they used to, that's just not possible. Um, and Russia, you know, that's gone. And I think everyone we've spoken to over the past year, it would take a, a fundamental change in regime and how how the country operates for, for them to ever return to the, to the international markets. So to read about anything we've discussed on the podcast today, go to globalcapital.com where you'll find it in more depth. Uh, and over the coming days, you'll be able to read those stories we talked about uh, examining the effects on capital markets of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, on Monday, we'll talk about Ukraine's borrowers. And on Tuesday, we'll be talking about the absence of Russia from the capital markets and the effect that has had. It only remains for me to thank John and George for joining me for this recording and to thank Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing it together. We'll be back with more from the Capital Markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 